You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Good to see you. Thank you, Catherine. Good morning, church family. Good to see you. Glad you're here today. Hope you had a great spring break. And we are continuing in our study of the Gospel of Mark. We are making our way to the cross and to the resurrection in Mark's Gospel. We'll arrive there by Good Friday and Easter, which is, by the way, only three weeks away. Spring is just flying, isn't it? It's moving. So we're just a few weeks away from Easter, from Good Friday and Easter. We will have a Good Friday service on, uh, on Good Friday. And then we'll have two Easter services, one at 9, one at 11 a.m. Hope you'll join us for Easter. We'll celebrate baptisms in between. It's going to be a great day. It's also the day that we celebrate our birthday as a church. We launched this church on Easter of 2012. So Easter is always super fun and really special for us um, here at Redeemer. Hope you'll join us. Okay, I want to invite you back into our text today with a question. And here is the question. Can a single meal change the course of history? Can a single meal, a single meal change and transform history? Well, it happened then in 1790. Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton bumped into each other outside of George Washington's home. And the two agreed to have dinner together. Really, it was Jefferson. Jefferson um, was, uh, had, had an agenda uh, for Hamilton. And so he invites him over for dinner and he prepares a meal at his house. He invites his buddy James Madison, and they get Jefferson good and full on food and drink, and then they begin to negotiate. And in the negotiation, Jefferson and Madison get what they want, and they make the agreement to move the United States Capitol from Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. You see, it was this meal that Thomas Jefferson, where he set the table And this meal was marked by a negotiation. It was marked by an agenda and a deal. And United States history was forever changed. See, these kinds of history-altering meals, they don't just happen in American history or in the past. They also happen now. They happen to us. It happened to me in 2007. I found myself at a life-changing meal. A few months earlier, I bumped into someone. I bumped into this fine-looking young lady named Sammy, who is now my wife. And I bumped into her just a few uh, months before Valentine's Day. And I mustered up the courage to invite her to a meal, to a Valentine's date. But I, I had made uh, one mistake. There was one thing that I had forgotten, and that was to make a reservation. Uh, <clears throat> I was a rookie. This was my first real date. And, um, and I didn't make a reservation. And so every single restaurant in Lubbock, Texas, had a two-hour-plus wait. And so we find ourselves having a history-changing meal with a tea candle and a carnation at the only restaurant in Lubbock with no line and no wait, the Golden Corral. <laughs> you see, when Jordan sets the table, when Jordan sets the table, the meal is often marked by embarrassment and shame. But my wife, at the time, she was gracious about this. It was several months later that she actually told me she's completely disgusted by buffets. (laughs) But she was gracious, and I left that meal knowing that that is the girl that I want to marry. You see, meals can change history, history of nations. Meals can change and transform people's stories, like mine. And there is no meal that is more important, no meal that is more transforming 
of the world and of lives than the meal that we find in Mark chapter 14. See, in our text today, we find Jesus preparing a meal. Jesus is setting the table for his disciples. He's preparing a meal and he's setting the table for his disciples. And when Jesus sets the meal, we can always be sure of this. When Jesus sets the table and prepares the meal, it is not marked by uh, a deal. (laughs) It is not marked by shame or embarrassment. When Jesus sets the table, the meal is always marked by mercy. See, in our text today, we find a meal of mercy amidst the backdrop of betrayal. Three questions that I want to answer today as we work our way back through the text. First, what is this meal? That's what we'll look at first. What is this meal? Number two, who is in the room? Who is this meal for? And three, what's missing? There's something missing in the meal. What's missing and why does it matter? Let me pray and we'll get back into the text. Jesus, we thank you for who you are, and that your word is crystal clear about who you are and what you've done, how you've really lived the most beautiful life, and Jesus, how you really died, you took up the cross for sinners, how you rose from the dead. There is no grave, there is no tomb, it is empty, you've risen, and how you're really reigning, you are king, you are lord of all, you reign above it all, or above every place and above every tribe and tongue and above above every human heart that's even in this room, you reign, Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray that as we open your word, as we look at this meal that changed the world and that transforms lives week after week, we pray that you would speak to us by your Holy Spirit through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. What is this meal that they are sharing? Mark chapter 14, verse 12. Let's look back at Verse 12, it says, On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? You see, for the ancient Jews, and even still today for the Jewish people, the Passover was an annual meal. It it was a time to remember a history-changing moment for the people of Israel. And this was to be remembered and recalled and reenacted through a meal, through the Passover meal. In fact, we read about this history-changing moment in the Old Testament of our Bibles in the book of Exodus. The Israelites are enslaved in Egypt under the harsh, terrible, oppressive rule of Pharaoh. But when the time was right, the scriptures tell us God heard the cries of his people. God saw his people and he remembered his people, Exodus tells us. And that he makes a promise to Moses that he will free his people. When the time was right, God acted. He acted through a series of plagues that he used, that he sent. I think our kids have been learning about this recently in Redeemer Kids. But through a series of plagues in order to get Pharaoh's attention and loosen his grip so that he might free and rescue his people, the nation of Israel. But it was the final plague that the world would never forget. In the final plague, God tells Pharaoh that if he doesn't release the Israelites, that the firstborn in every family in the land of Egypt would die. One author sums it up this way. He says, God, in this moment, unsheathed the sword of divine justice. He says, and this justice would fall on everyone in every home in Egypt, both Jews and Egyptians alike. Someone 
would die under the wrath of God's justice and judgment. The only way for your family to escape was to put your faith in God's sacrificial provision. Namely, you had to slay a lamb. This was God's instructions. You had to obey God's instructions, trust him at his word through the the means which he provides. The author says you had to slay a lamb and put the blood on the door as a sign of your faith in God. In every home that night, there would either be a dead child or a dead lamb. When justice came down, it either fell on your family or you took shelter under the substitute under the blood of the lamb. If you accept this shelter, then death passed over you and you were saved. I think that's a great summation of what happens in the Exodus story. And it helps us understand why this meal was called the Passover. And every year, the Passover would be remembered. It would be remembered through a meal. This meal would enact God's promise of rescue, God's promise of redemption, uh, God's promise of renewal and restoration of relationship with his people. But this holiday meal, this Passover meal, it's not like the way that you and I uh, celebrate our, uh, our holiday dinners, our Christmas dinner, right? For you and I, we might have a different menu from my house to your house. We might eat our Christmas dinner or our Thanksgiving dinner at a different time from my house to your house. We all have a bit of a different spin or a different tradition around the holidays. This was not the case with the Passover. See, the Passover meal required specific preparations and following specific instructions. This is what the disciples are worried about in verse 12. Luke's gospel tells us that it's Peter and John, that they come to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, it's, it's getting, getting later in the day. Are we going to eat the Passover? Where are we going to eat the Passover? Are we going to make preparations for the Passover? You can tell that they're worried. But Jesus, it's clear by verse 13, that Jesus has gone before them. Jesus has made the preparations. Look back at verse 13. And he sent two of his disciples and he said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. And this would have been interesting. Normally it would have been a woman who would go to the well to who would carry the jar of water. So for it to be a man, it would have really one stood out to them in a crowded city. And two, it would have meant that this person was most likely a servant of a wealthy family. And so we see that Jesus has gone before them. Verse 14, he says, Follow him, and whatever, wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Verse 15, And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he told them. This sounds a lot like the, the story in chapter 11 before the triumphal entry, right? Where Jesus has gone before them and makes preparations. Jesus is in full control. Jesus knows what he's doing. This day is not a surprise to Jesus. This meal has been prepared before the disciples. Verse 16, and they, found, and, and they prepared for the Passover meal. Verse 17, and when it was evening, he came with the 12. And so this meal, it required specific preparations. First, the Passover meal had to be eaten and had to be eaten in the evening, in the evening hours. It also had to be eaten inside the walls of Jerusalem, or at least if Jerusalem was too crowded or too busy, uh, maybe some of the surrounding 
as cities and towns would do, but it should be in the city of Jerusalem. This is why droves of pilgrims would come for the Passover to Jerusalem. Usually it would be a couple of families that would come together in a home to eat the Passover that evening. The Passover meal, it required that there would be a presider over the meal. Usually the presider would be the head of the household, the head of the family. And it would be common for, the, for this meal to be a slow meal. Not like the way that you and I might rush through Thanksgiving meal so we could turn on the game, you know. Uh, rush through the meal so we could get to the dessert. Rush through the meal so the kids could go play. This is not the case at all. This was a specific, intentional slow meal. The text tells us that they are reclined. That's part of the preparation, that the furniture would be right so they could recline at the table and eat this meal. In fact, the presider over the Passover meal would lead the family through four moves. Four moves. The meal would be an intentional, slow meal of four moves that would recount God's promise that he made to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 through 8. And so it would be four moves recounting the four promises in Exodus 6. First, the promise, God promises Moses that he will indeed rescue his people from Egypt. The second promise in Exodus 6 is that he will indeed set them free. They won't just be rescued for a moment, but they will be freed from Pharaoh. Third promise was for redemption. They would be slaves no more. No longer would their identity be slaves in Egypt, but they would come out of, the, come out of slavery and they would be redeemed. They would learn their identity. They would learn who Yahweh is, the Lord their God. He would give them the law to guide them. He would provide for them and he would redeem their life and give them a new, uh, renewed identity in him. And the fourth promise is that God would restore relationship with them. His presence would dwell among them, and we know that he does this. He tabernacles among them. And so these four promises that God makes in Exodus chapter 6 would be uh, recounted and retold and reenacted with four cups. The presider standing up over the family as they eat this meal. Cup number one, we remember that God will free his people. Remember how he's done that. And they would pass the cup and they would drink. And then when the time was right, the presider would stand up. Cup number two, we remember God's promise for freedom, that he will set us free once and for all. A free people we are belonging to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And they would enact and they would remember God's promise kept and they would pass and drink the cup. Then they would go to cup number three and the presider would stand up and he would uh, recount the promise of redemption. A redeemed people we are. We belong to God. We're his chosen people. We keep his law. We obey him. We are his. Go read Deuteronomy 26. It recounts uh, this promise. They are redeemed people and they would drink together the third cup. And then guess what would happen between the third cup and the fourth cup? Finally, they would eat the meal. Finally, after all the anticipation, all the remembering, all the recounting, they would eat the meal. First, the bread, and then the lamb. They would feast. And after the feast, they'd make their way to the fourth cup, where they remember, because of the lamb, through the lamb, we now have a restored, renewed relationship with the living God. He is our God. We are his people because of the lamb. And they would pass the fourth cup and they would drink. We look down in verse 22 of our text today 
it's really clear who's the presider over this Passover meal. It's Jesus. Jesus has them gathered together, and he's working his way through the promises and through the four cups. And between the third and the fourth cup of wine, it was time to eat the meal. I want you to imagine the anticipation. They're ready for the food. I'm sure it smells good. They've been making preparation. And the presider, Jesus, when it's time for him to stand up and read verse, uh, read Deuteronomy 26 and bless the food and bring in the lamb, Jesus makes an abrupt turn. He makes an abrupt turn. The text tells us that, uh, uh, that, there's, that there's something that Jesus needs to address. The text tells us that, and so I want to ask the, move to our second question. Who's in the room? So we, what is the meal? Now who's in the room? Because Jesus needs to address something that's in the room before they move to the meal. The text tells us that there are 12, the 12 disciples are at this meal. Now it's possible that some of Jesus's other followers would have been there as well. It's possible that some of the women that walked with Jesus would have been there. This was, after all, a meal that you would share with your family. And so, um, you know, I can't imagine that Jesus would have kicked his mother to the curb and maybe Mary Magdalene to the curb, you know, like, hey, no, you can't. It's possible. We don't know. But here's what we do know. We do know that the text is crystal clear telling us that it's the twelve that the 12 are the one that are important. Why is this important in this text? Well, here's why. Because the Passover meal was a meal that one shared with their family. And it's these 12, well, 11 of these 12, that would become the patriarchs of God's new family. Remember, Jesus has said things about, and my family are those who do the will of God. He's redefining family and through his ministry. Um, and so these 11 would become the patriarchs of God's new family, the church. These men would later become apostles who are filled with the Holy Spirit, who proclaim to the nations the, the message of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection with power, seeing many, many, many come to faith and the church sprout up and be birthed. We are here today because of these men. And we are part of, we're brothers and sisters, a part of God's family because of the ministry of these men, because of their sacrificial leadership and their suffering and their servant-hearted faith, the church was established. But hear me, that is not who these men are in this moment. That is not who these men are on this day. That is not who is in this room. At this moment, this room is full of unworthy unfit, unfaithful men that Jesus is reclining at table with. Men who lack understanding. Men who love money more than they love Christ. Men who care too much about the opinions of other people. And when the heat gets turned up, deny the Lord their Christ. You see, that room on this night is perhaps a lot like this room full of unworthy, undeserving sinners. See, this meal on this night, 
This meal isn't filled with the same aroma of devotion as we saw last week, where the faithful woman breaks the jar and anoints Jesus' head, and it's the aroma of sacrificial love and devotion. That's not the aroma in the air on this night. Instead, on this night, what is hanging over this meal, what the aroma is on this meal, what the backdrop is of this meal, is betrayal. And Jesus calls it out. Look at verse 18. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began, and they began to be sorrowful, and they said to him, one after another, is it I? They're, they're like, hey, none of us. <laughs> this is beyond none of us. They, they know who they are in this moment, how unworthy and how unfit they are. He said to them, it's one of the 12, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written for him. But woe to the man to whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man had he not been born. That saying that Jesus gives there at the end of verse 21 was a common saying of judgment in Jesus' day. Woe to that man for it had been better that you had not been born. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying here that there is one among us who in this moment is eating, who in the next moment will hand me over. That is literally what the word in your Bible, betray, means. It literally means hand to hand over. And Mark wants us to see in this moment that this meal that Jesus has set, this table that Jesus has set, is a meal of mercy. It's a meal of mercy. Hear me. Mark has already told us just previously in chapter 14, verse 10 through 11, that Judas has gone to the chief priest and he's struck a deal. He struck a deal to hand Jesus over. And Jesus knows this. He knows this. Mark is going to tell us in the very next section of the narrative that Peter, that Peter is going to deny him. Peter is going to be embarrassed by him. As embarrassed, more embarrassed than I was sitting at Golden Corral on Valentine's night. Judas struck a deal. Peter's going to deny him. The next section he's going to tell us that James and John are going to fall asleep on him and abandon him. We know that Thomas is in the room. Thomas doubted him. He doubted his resurrection. Jesus knows this. He knows who's in the room. He's aware of this. Yet what does he do? He walks with them to Jerusalem. He goes before them and prepares a meal of mercy. He presides over the meal, caring for them. He reclines with them. Cup one, cup two, cup three. And then now Jesus says, I want you to know that I know what you've done. I want you to know that I know who all of you are. Will you hear that today? Will you hear that this morning? Jesus says, I want you to know that I know who you really are. I want you to know that I know what you've done. I want you to know that I know what you will do. I know who you are. I know what you've done. I know what you will do. Yet he invites you in. He invites you to his table. He invites you to feast at his mercy meal. In fact, Luke 22 verse 15 tells us that in this moment, Luke twenty two fifteen 15 says, Jesus earnestly desires to eat this Passover with them. 
Jesus wanted to be in table fellowship with them, with a betrayer, with a denier, with a doubter, men of fickle faith that will abandon him at the cross, men who will fall asleep and who will run away in the days of head. This, are the, this is the kind of people that Jesus sets the table for. Do you see this? Do you see how Jesus sets the table? In other words, their unworthiness to be at the table with him does not stop him. Instead, the text reads as if their unworthiness to be at the table with him, their undeservingness to share in fellowship with him, to receive from him, their unworthiness, it compels him. It compels him. Look at verse 22. And they're eating, and he took the bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, and he gave it to them, and he said, take, this is my body. Jesus moves from the Third cup, the cup that promises redemption. Isn't this beautiful? The promise of redemption that who you are now is not who you will be because of my mercy upon you. And he says, take, this is my body, take and eat. In other words, Jesus is now no longer uh, 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 shepherding them, presiding over this meal as a, a memory of, of God's past salvation. But now he's beginning to reinterpret this meal about the present He's, he's reinterpreting it about God's present salvation. He says, he takes the bread, he blesses it. Instead of saying the traditional, this is the bread of the affliction that the forefathers ate in the wilderness, he says, this is the bread of my body. This is the bread of my affliction. This is the bread of my brokenness, of my suffering for you. Take and eat. It's a beautiful picture of who this meal is for, a meal of mercy for the undeserving. Verse 23, and then he took the cup. Wait a second. What's missing? Third cup, bread, lamb. Fourth cup, what's missing? Jesus has, Jesus has, has skipped the lamb. What's going on here? He took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gives it to them. And they, they drink it, and I imagine that they're a bit perplexed, that they're a bit shocked. They're thinking, hmm, where is the lamb? The, the, the most central part of the meal, did, did Jesus forget the lamb? We thought he went before us and made preparation. Maybe it was this, this wealthy uh, house owner that's letting us use their guest room. Maybe they forgot the lamb. They, the, the other servant didn't roast it at the right time. I don't know. We'll just roll with it. But look at what Jesus says. He says in verse 24, this is the blood of the covenant of the new covenant, which is poured out for many. You see, Jesus moves straight from the bread to the fourth cup. The blood of the new covenant, he says. A new promise. A new thing that God is doing. A new deliverance. A new salvation. See, the, the fourth move in the meal is where the presider would recall God's promise of a renewed, restored relationship with God. A new way of knowing God and being in his midst and being in his presence. It was because of the lamb, see this, they would remember the Passover lamb because of the lamb that the Israelites were rescued out of slavery and into relationship with God. Without the lamb, there would be no salvation. There would be no covering for the judgment of God that falls. And so how can Jesus move from the third cup to the fourth cup without the lamb? Well, 
the reason that there is no lamb at this meal, no lamb that is brought to the table, is because the lamb of God is at the table. The lamb of God, Jesus Christ, has prepared the meal and he presides over the meal. And now he is saying, I'm not only the preparer and the presider, but I am the portion. I am the meal. Do you remember what John the Baptist said at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? Do you remember what he said? How does he, how does he announce Jesus? He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is saying, I am the Lamb. Do you remember the words of Isaiah 53? The prophet who speaks of the Messiah that would come, he says that he would be pierced for our transgressions. He would be crushed for our iniquities like a lamb led to the slaughter. See, Jesus says, my body broken, my body sacrificed, my blood poured out. It is the only way to redemption. It is the only way to rescue. It is the only way out of the grip of sin, out of Satan's power over our life and over our world, and into redemption and into new life. Do you see that? Do you want that? This is what this meal is about. Rescue, redemption, freedom, and renewal. This is why the cross of Christ is necessary because God so loves sinners that he takes their sin upon himself. This is where all of this is headed, the cross of Christ, where the justice of God would be satisfied and the love of God would be amplified. There is no moment in history as significant as this. And just as the first Passover meal came the night before the ancient Israelites were rescued. So Jesus institutes a new meal on the night before the world is rescued from sin and death. Jesus institutes this meal the night before his cross. It's a meal that changed the world. Jesus prepares it. Jesus presides over it. Jesus is the portion, and it is a meal of mercy, and it would be a meal of mercy for generations to come. Who is it for? Who is this meal for today? Well, it's not for the put-together folks. It's not for the people that are, um, that are sure of themselves with their buttoned-up spirituality. No, it is still a meal of mercy. It is a meal for the unworthy and for the undeserving. It's a meal for anyone who would call out upon Jesus as their substitute. Jesus as their rescue, Jesus as their freedom, Jesus as their redemption, who would say, Christ in my place, Christ for my life, what I deserved passed over me because of him. This is who the meal is for. And the apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that we ought to take the meal as often as we gather together as Christians until the day that the Lord Jesus comes again. And so, he says what Jesus has done here is he's reinterpreted the Passover meal and he's made it a meal both of remembrance and a meal of proclamation. The apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, remember Christ's body broken. Remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins and proclaim it, Paul says, until Christ comes again. It's a meal that we take with brothers and sisters in Christ as often as we gather. And what does it do for us as we take this meal? And if you're a part of this church, you know it's a meal that we take every week. It's a meal that we take week by week. What does it do for us? 
Well, it's a meal that feeds our soul and strengthens our faith as we come to the table that he set for us. And what did we say earlier? What was the always? When Jesus sets the table, it's always a meal of mercy. It's a meal of mercy, always, that strengthens our faith and feeds our souls as we come and take. It's a meal for sinners. It's a meal that you come and take and you admit and acknowledge that you are a sinner who is saved by the grace of God alone, by faith alone, and the person and work of Jesus Christ alone. It's a meal that we remember and proclaim that as sure as there is breath in our lungs, our sin is no more. The same Lord Jesus Christ that sees you and knows you, he knows who you are, who you really are, he knows what you've done and he knows what you will do. He says because he loves you and because of what he's done for you on the cross, your sins are no more. And we take the meal and we believe it and we taste it. It's a meal for those who desire to be raised up into the, by the Spirit into the presence of Christ. It's a meal for those who feel doused with doubts. Anybody there? It's a meal for those who feel doused with doubt and are hungry to experience the love of God that is real. And so we touch elements that are real and we taste uh, juice or wine that is real and we remember the real love of God that was poured out for you. Do you want to know if God loves you, if God is for you, if God is with you? The Bible says, look at the cross. Look at the cross. It's a meal that points us finally to our glorious future. What does Jesus say in verse 25? Look back at verse 25. air conditioner blew my Bible pages. Back at verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. It's a meal that we take week by week that points us to the future reality that Christ will come again. And when he comes again, he is going to usher in a meal of glory. We will eat with him and feast with him and dine with him in a meal of glory. And Christ has promised this. He's promised that. And so we eat this meal, this appetizer taste of the day that he's coming again, when sin and death will be no more, suffering will be no more. We will be fully and finally set free, rescued, redeemed, and restored and renewed in the presence of the Almighty God. What a day that will be, amen? And until that day, he says, gather together, worship me, remember me, proclaim me, and feast upon my body and my blood. Let me pray for us, and we will go to the table together. Jesus, we honor you, and we lift you high. We thank you for the meal that you set. Father, we thank you for the preparations that you've made, that when the time was right, you sent your son. You saw us, you heard us, you loved us so that you sent your son. And there's never been a moment, there's never been a meal, there's never been a person that has changed and transformed the world like Jesus Christ has. There's never been a a moment, there's never been a meal, there's never been a person that can change and transform hearts and lives like Jesus Christ can. 
And so we thank you, we honor you, Jesus, and we pray that as we enter into a time of response this morning, that we would taste and see that you are good, that you are better. We pray that as we come to the table and as we take the elements and we remember and we proclaim your death and resurrection, that you would lift us up by your Spirit's power into the presence of Christ, that as we come and we take this meal that we would experience and that we would feel your love, that we would be uh, reminded that you are greater than our doubts, greater than our sin, that we are loved and freed and accepted and redeemed, not because we earned it or deserved it, but because you are a merciful God. You are a gracious God. As we enter into a time of response, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would move in our midst, that you would minister to us. For those who come in this morning hurting, I pray that you would strengthen them. For those who are weak in faith, we ask that you would lift them up. For those who are proud, arrogant, don't want to be here, I pray that you would humble them to see your truth and your grace that your kindness would lead us to repentance as we come to the table to take this meal. I pray that your love would shepherd us and guide us as we worship you. We pray for any person here today that has not put their lives behind your blood, behind your sacrifice, and has not given their allegiance to you and made you Lord of their life, that they would this morning see you for who you are in your greatness and in your glory in your love and in your mercy, and they would take hold of Christ. They would claim him as their Savior, crown him as their Lord before it is too late. We pray that today would be that day. We invite you to move, minister to us as we respond to your word. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store. 